it a lot of times in the greeting cards when it comes to love. But we want to look at it, and that's great, not that it's bad, but, you know, a lot of times, you know, it's not understood in the way the Bible teaches it. The message this morning is called A More Excellent Way. Now, what does that mean? Well, between today and, and when we look at the rest of the chapter, Lord willing, next Sunday, uh, we will see. It was Jonathan Swift, the author of Gulliver's Travels, who said, We have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love each other. Chapter 13 has probably been one of the most misinterpreted and misapplied chapters in the Bible. Because it's often taken out of its context. And this is what I was speaking out when I first opened up right now. It, it's often taken out of its context and becomes a sentimental poem. Beautiful words, and they are. About love. Or it's about a, a, a sermon on Christian fellowship. And many people don't see that Paul was still dealing with problems in the Corinthian church when he wrote this chapter. And this was one of the problems in the Corinthian church. They, weren't, they didn't have love. The abuse of the gift of tongues was a problem. Division in the church. Envying each other's gifts. Selfishness, lawsuits, impatience with one another in the public meetings. And, and that behavior was disgracing to God because we, we, we claim to be a child of God. We claim to be a Christian. And these kind of things in the Corinthian church or any church isn't godly behavior. It's disgracing to God. The only way spiritual gifts can be used effectively is when Christians are moved by love. That is, when they do the things that they do, it's because of love. They're motivated by love. It doesn't matter how exciting or wonderful spiritual gifts are because they're useless and even damaging if they're not practiced in love. The main sign of maturity in the Christian life is a growing love for God. And a growing love for his people. As well as a love for lost souls. For people that don't know Jesus. And the, and the Bible's simplest description of God. And his own description of himself is. God is love. 1 John 4.16. God is love. Love is the most blessed demonstration of the character of God. Look at the cross. The greatest demonstration and description of the love of God, the cross. And John goes on to say in John 14, 1, the one who abides in love abides in God and a God abides in him. So the simplest and most insightful description of Christian character also is love. And it's, you know, really a sad thing in many churches like the church in Corinth here. The love that is so basic to Christian character doesn't represent the membership or the ministry. Love was missing in Corinth, as it is in, unfortunately, many churches this morning. They had spiritual gifts, chapter 1, 7 says. They had the right doctrine for the most part. It was present in the church. 
according to chapter 11, verse 2. But love was missing. And all through history, it seems like the church has found it very hard to be loving. And here's the sad part. Hard, because it's not because they can't. They won't. They won't. It's easier to keep doctrine. It's easier to follow the practices of the church than to be loving. And easier to be busy in church work than to be loving. And yet the highest characteristic that God demands of his people is love. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 38, a lawyer asked Jesus, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. John 13, verse 34 uh, 34 and 35, Jesus said, By this, that is by love, by love, by uh, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, in resisting or opposing that love, the enemy of the church makes some of his greatest advancements, some of his greatest efforts. People come in, they don't see the love, they don't sense the love in the church. The enemy wins. He says, the, the folks go out and say, man, that was, that was a cold church. They weren't very friendly, they weren't very loving. Chapter 13 is the most important chapter in Paul's long discussion on spiritual gifts. Chapters 12, 13, and 14. Chapter 12, as we looked at already, discusses the giving and receiving of, and the relatedness of the gifts. Chapter 14, when we look at in a couple of weeks, chapter 14 presents the proper use of the gifts, and especially tongues. But right in the middle of it all, chapter 13. We see the right attitude and atmosphere, the proper motive and power. Paul called it the more excellent way that God has planned for all of the gifts to operate. And love is no doubt more excellent than feeling. All right. It's more excellent than feeling, whether it's feeling resentful and, 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 and being a, and second rate because you don't have the, the showier or seemingly more important gifts. It's also more excellent than feeling superior and independent because you do have those gifts. And it's more excellent than trying to operate spiritual gifts in your own power, in the flesh, rather than in the spirit and for selfish purposes rather than for God's. The genuine spiritual life is the only life where the gifts of the spirit can operate. The growth and the health of your spiritual life isn't revealed by spiritual gifts, but in spiritual fruit. And in Galatians 5.22, the foremost gift which is mentioned first is love. Love. From which all the others operate. Again, the first fruit listed is love. In Colossians 3.12-14, Paul describes the character of the new man. Listen to how he describes the new man. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, 
kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you almost, uh, also must do. But above all of these things, he said, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. It is the glue. Love is the glue that holds, holds all of these other uh, uh, attributes together. Without the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit can't operate except in the flesh where they become fake, just an act and interfere with what God wants to do. Through the fruit of the Spirit, God gives the motivation and the power to minister the gifts of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, like all spiritual living, uh, comes only from walking in the Spirit. Having a spiritual gift does not make us spiritual. Even having the fruit of the Spirit doesn't make one spiritual. It's only walking in the Spirit that makes the believer spiritual. Because walking in the Spirit is Paul's way of defining everyday obedience to the Word of God and submission to the Lord. The Corinthian Christians, they weren't walking in the Spirit. They were selfish, they were self-willed, they were self-motivated, and they had their own agenda. Doing everything they could to promote their own interests and their own good. That is, to do what was best for themselves. And that, that's what's natural. That's the natural man before we come to Christ. It's all about me. It's about pleasing my flesh, pleasing what I want. Everyone was doing their own thing in the Corinthian church. Doing it for their own good without thinking much about others. Now, the Corinthians, they didn't lack in any gift, Paul mentioned earlier. They didn't lack in any of the gifts, but they were lacking big time in spiritual fruit. Because they weren't walking in the Spirit. And the Spirit is the source and the power of the gifts and of the fruit. On the many things, of the many things that those believers lacked, the most important was love. Like the church at Ephesus. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus said they had left their first love. They had left their first love for the Lord. The word left there, it means to let go. They didn't lose their love. It, meant, it means to send away or to abandon. They neglected that love. It was a willful neglect. They just, they just neglected to, 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 to build upon it. They neglected to nurture that love. The church at Ephesus didn't go off track in their, in their doctrine. They didn't go tra- off track in the Bible. They went off track in their personal relationship to Jesus. And you see, when you, <clears throat> when you stray from the source of love, how can you be loving? You can't. It's impossible. You know, it's like a, it's like a power tool. When you're not plugged into the source, you don't have power to the tool. It's useless. And when, you don't, when you're not plugged into the source of love, which is Jesus Christ... That love isn't flowing through you to others. It's been cut off. It's impossible to show love when you're you're unplugged from this power source. 
And Paul deliberately uses the highest word for love in the Greek vocabulary, which is far beyond any definition of love that was known to the Greeks or anybody else. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, John says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. 1 John 3, 1, it, it reads like this in, in, in a, uh, a paraphrase, in, in a, um, a New Living Translation. It says, Behold, what peculiar, out-of-this-world kind of love the Father has bestowed upon us. Think about that. That's literally what it means. The word behold, what manner is behold, what, what peculiar out of this world, because it's, it's not of this world. Agape love is not of this world. In Weiss' translation of uh, 1 John 3, 1, he said, behold what exotic or foreign to the human heart love the Father has permanently bestowed upon us. Notice, exotic, foreign to the human heart. We don't know that love apart from Christ. We can talk about love and we can say love, but apart from God, it, it, it's, it's, it's out of this world. It's a heavenly love. Agape love is one of the rarest words in ancient Greek literature, but one of the most common in the New Testament. It's not like our English word love. Because our English word love, there's only one word for it. And yet we use it in, in several different ways, meaning several different things. Because, you know, you can say, I love my wife. And then you can turn and say, I love my dog. Hopefully it's not the same love. But we have only one word for love. I love burritos, I love this, I love that, I love my car. But again, there's a different meaning behind the love that you mentioned for each one of those things. But there's only one word agape in the Greek that means a self-sacrificial love. There's like five or six different words in the Greek for different kinds of love. There's a word phileo, which means a, a... a, a, a friendly kind of love. That's where we get the word Philadelphia, brotherly love. There's eros love. That's a sexual kind of a love. That's where we get the word erotic. So again, there, there's these different meanings of love in the Greek because it, 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 when you say love, you, it, it's a different, it can be a different meaning behind it for the different things that you're talking about. The English word love, it, it never refers to romantic or sexual love. Again, that's where eros is used which doesn't appear in the New Testament. Nor does it refer to mere sentiment. Agape love doesn't uh, 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 refer to mere sentiment, emotions. No, it's not a pleasant feeling about something or someone. It doesn't mean a close friendship or brotherly love. Again, that's where phileo is used. Agape doesn't mean charity or kindness. That's only associated with giving to the needy. This chapter is the best definition of the Greek word agape. A famous psychiatrist named Carl Menninger, also founder of the Menninger Clinic, wrote this. Love is the medicine for our sick old world. If people can learn to give and receive love, they'll usually recover from their physical or mental illness. And not many people have any idea of what true love is. Most people, and including a lot of Christians, seem to think of it only in terms of nice feelings. 
warm affections, romance and desire. And we've heard, the, we've heard it said before that love means never having to say you're sorry. Not true. The Bible tells us over and over again. You need to ask for forgiveness. And you need to forgive. We've heard the, 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 the saying, love is 50-50. The Bible says it's 100%. Because you see, in a marriage, if one person's giving 50% and the other, they're only giving half. And that's where a lot of the problems lie. And, 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 and that 50%, well, I'm doing my half, they're doing their half, and we're only giving in half. When we say, I love you, we often mean, I love me. And I want you. Which is the worst kind of selfishness. Ver, the very opposite of agape. Alan Redpath, author, Bible teacher. He tells the story about a young woman who came to her pastor bummed out and discouraged. She said, there's a man who says he loves me. He loves me so much he's going to kill himself if I don't marry him. What should I do? He said, nothing. Nothing. That man doesn't love you. He loves himself. You see, such a threat isn't love. It's pure selfishness. And how many young girls dating when a guy says, oh, man, you know, you don't love me if you don't, you know, have sex with me. It's not love. He wants something himself that he's not caring about her. That man doesn't love you, he said. He loves himself. Such a, that, that threat is, is pure selfishness. You see, self-giving love, love that demands something of us. Love that's more concerned with giving than receiving and doing what's best for the other person. That is a rare love in the church today as it was in Corinth. And that's because agape love is totally the opposite of human nature. Human nature wants to receive. Agape love wants to give. Agape love is is doing what's best for the other person. It's giving yourself away. Natural love, hey, give me. I want satisfaction. I want you to, to give to me what I want. Our world defines love as romantic feeling or attraction which has nothing to do with agape love. The greatest example of agape love is God's love, John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And notice the word gave. God so loved the world that he gave. Love is above all sacrificial. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. We as husbands are to be as giving to our wives as Jesus Christ was to his bride, the church. He's our example as a husband. It says, Jesus, there's no greater gift than to lay down your life for a friend. Jesus laid down his life. He gave his life. So you see, many times the the, the, the agape love, the word give is in there because it's a giving, not a taking. Agape love is the sacrifice of self for the sake of others, even for people who could care less about you. And you see, our love is always has strings attached. Well, I, I love you as long as you love me. But many times in a relationship, it, it sometimes might be a one-way street. And our, and our love to others is dependent upon their love for us. That's not what the Bible teaches 
We either have a, an agape-type love for others who could care less for me, who might even hate us. Because, you see, love is not a feeling. It's a determined act of the way. It's something I choose to do, which always results in determined acts of, of self-giving. Love is the willing, joyful desire to do what's best for others above your own. It doesn't have it. There's no place for pride or vanity or arrogance or self-seeking or self-glory. It's an act of my will. I choose to do it. I choose to do it. Why? Because I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. You know, we are commanded to love even our enemies. In Matthew 5, 44 through 47, listen to what Jesus said. He said, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Boy, we do all the opposite. We hate our enemies. I'm not going to bless somebody that curses. I'm not going to be good to somebody who hates me. And I'm not going to pray for anybody that, that uses me or persecutes me. Again, that's the natural man apart from God. Jesus said, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? In other words, if you love those who love you, well, you're not doing anything great by loving them back. There's no reward for loving, for loving somebody that, that loves me. He says, don't even the tax collectors do the same thing? Speaking of those, the tax collectors in the Bible. And if you greet your brethren only, that is only your friends, your brethren in Christ. He says, if you greet them, what do you do more than others? So here's the inference. You are to do more than others. He says, don't even the tax collectors do, that, do so. Paul said in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God continues to demonstrate his love for us even even though we don't want anything to do with him. When I was in the world and could care less about Jesus Christ and I was out there doing my own thing, God was still demonstrating his love for me. God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, he died for me. And if God loved us in such a way, how much more should we love those that are our enemies? A more excellent way is more emphasis on grace than on the gift. The problem at the, at the church in Corinth was that they had fallen in love with their gifts. And it's possible to fall in love with your church, your denomination, your ministry, the leader, more than the Lord. And Paul now is going to begin to present his case for the absolute preeminence of love. Let's begin with verse 1 now of chapter 12. And Paul says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. So Paul starts out in chapter 12, verse 1, with the need for love. And he shows us that it's possible for someone to have great gifts of communication and he might have the ability to speak with other tongues. But Paul is simply saying here that even though he could speak such a heavenly language, it wouldn't mean a thing because the real test of true Christianity isn't language. That is, it isn't words, but it's love, actions. 
And it's no coincidence that Paul mentions tongues first. He mentions tongues first because it was the last and least of gifts based on chapter 12, verse 28. And people make so many, so many, so many times they, they, they make the gift of tongues the number one gift and the most important. And if you don't have it, you're not saved. And if you don't have it, you don't have you know, a gift of the Spirit. And yet the Corinthians put it first. Paul puts it first to show it's totally worthless if it wasn't used in love. All tongues, if not accompanied by love, is only a continual loud noise, he says. He compares this tongue speaking to a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Both instruments, they just make noise. You can bang on them all day long and they don't make music. They make a noise. The Corinthians were very familiar with pagan rituals and the ceremonies that use these instruments to make a lot of noise, but without any sense. Tongues without love becoming, become nothing but loud, unmistakable, and annoying noise, almost totally without meaning. Verse 2. You know that... <clears throat> I'm sorry. Verse, um, verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy... And understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but not have love, I am nothing. So Paul says, though I might have the ability to see divine truth, that is the gift of prophecy. This is the other communication gift that was so prominent at the time when Judaism was being passed out, uh, phased out and, and replaced by God and with Christianity. Balaam and Caiaphas were able to prophesy. But they were empty of love. They didn't have love. It didn't profit either one of them. Love is an evidence. It is a sign of the new birth that you're born again. Prophecy isn't. In the Sermon on the Mount, where the law of love was broken down in Matthew 5, 43 through 48. Uh, okay, uh, Jesus pleaded here. Uh, uh, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. In the Sermon on the Mount, that's where the law was broken down. All right. In Matthew 5, 43 through 48. But Jesus warns those on the day of judgment, they would plead, according to Matthew 7, 22 and 23, they would plead, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I, Jesus said, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Can you imagine? They say, well, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons. We did many wonders in your name. But Jesus said, hey, I never knew you. Now, what does he mean he never knew him? Not He knows everyone, but he didn't know them in terms of a personal relationship. A love relationship with him. A person might have more than just great gifts of communication without love. He can also have great gifts of understanding to understand all mystery, that is the hidden secrets of God, and all knowledge, as mentioned here, which is a grasp of the Holy Scriptures. And it's obvious that God has made his mind and purposes known, because Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. He kept a lot of things secret in Old Testament times. Things weren't revealed at that time. As Paul said in Ephesians 3, 5, 
He says, but now they've been revealed by the spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Secrets dealing with the kingdom of heaven. Secrets that the Lord revealed to the disciples and kept from the multitudes by speaking in a series of mysterious parables. Like the rapture of the church and the reign of lawlessness on the earth that would follow. But the great secret is the secret of the church itself. Kept secret since the world began and all through the Old Testament. It was a secret that was kept by God. It was hidden from all other ages, but it's made known now. That one day the Gentiles would be part of the body of Christ and become equal members with the Jews. That wasn't the subject of the Old Testament prophecy. It was a mystery. It was hidden. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, some of the mysteries hadn't been revealed yet. Like the mystery of the harlot church in Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. So if someone was able to understand, Paul was saying in verse 2, now if someone was able to understand all of these mysteries and also have all knowledge and they were able to, to reveal the deeper meaning of all the scriptures but didn't have love, it would all add up to nothing. It would mean nothing. And not only great gifts of communication and understanding, but great gifts of confidence. He said, and if, they ha- if I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. Now, Paul wasn't talking about saving faith, which always shows itself in works, like James says. If we are saved, it will be shown by works, not because we have to, but because it's, it's automatic. It just comes because of the love of Christ. Paul's talking about miracle working faith. He's talking about that that faith, that that absolute confidence in God and of being in the will of God that can see God remove obstacles from the path. He's talking about this kind of faith here alone. This kind of faith alone does not prove a person is a genuine believer. Even Judas could work miracles and yet the greatest miracle is love. In one of her, her, her books, you may be uh, familiar with Corrie Ten Boom. In one of her books, Corrie Ten Boom tells about meeting a man who had been one of the guards in the Nazi con- concentration camp where she and her sister were imprisoned. They were treated brutally, they were starved, and they were terrorized. And it's where her sister died a slow, cruel death. In the Jewish, in the German concentration camps. Years later, even though her memory of the terrible wounds were healed, the scars were still there. Can you imagine? One day, she was out speaking, and she met the man unexpectedly, face to face, that brutally tortured and beat and starved her and her sister. She said unexpectedly, face to face, all the horrors of the camp rose like a ghostly phantom from the past. But he had now become a Christian. And when the man asked her to forgive him, she said her own nature raised up its head and she revolted. But she forgave him for Jesus' sake. She said it was a miracle of love. Can you imagine? How difficult that would be. All the things that 
those folks went through in those concentration camps to experience it and then to have one of those people come up to you and ask for forgiveness. And that, that has to only be <laughs> the power of God. She forgave him for Jesus' sake. She says it was a miracle of love. Love is placed way above faith in Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit. Even more, it has goodness and meekness there with it too in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Now look at verse 3. Therefore, I'm sorry, wrong, wrong side. Chapter 13, verse 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing The point that Paul is making here is that you can have great gifts, but without love. For example, he says here, he might show great human compassion. He says, he might bestow, if I bestow all of my goods to feed the poor, without love it means nothing. This bestowing of goods to feed the poor, this is charity, it's kindness. But it can really be done without love. Welfare is an example where help is rationed out little by little, according to, you know, socialistic philosophy, rather than Christian love. The words bestow or, and feed the poor, it comes from one Greek word that means a mouthful. Literally, to give away mouthful by mouthful. The idea is, is something that's given little by little. It mostly means to feed by putting little bits into the mouth. In other words, the person giving out the ration might get some kind of satisfaction, some good, good, feel-good feeling from doing this. But the person receiving the ration probably doesn't. Paul pictures a person giving all he owns and doing it out of maybe a sense of duty, but certainly not out of a deep abiding love. Paul says, this kind of charity is worthless. Remember when Jesus fed the hungry multitudes? He didn't give them bit by bit. He gave generously so that every man and every woman and every child was filled. You know what the word filled means? To gorge. He gorged them (laughs) with the food he gave them. Not only that, remember the disciples collected 12 baskets of leftovers. Matthew 14, 19 through 20, it says, He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and he broke, and he gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitudes, so they, so they all ate, and they were filled, gorged. And then they took up 12 baskets full of fragments that remained. And lastly, a person might show a great heartfelt desire. He says, as Paul says here in verse 3, And though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Now people might say, man, you give your body to be burned for somebody? It it doesn't mean anything? You know, know, sacrificing your life has to be the greatest gift. I mean, to be so committed to, to cause you even to give your life, even to be burned at the stake. But you know, think of how many people have become martyrs for the wrong cause. Even hate-filled beliefs like communism. 
But Paul shows here that there's nothing naturally praiseworthy about being a martyr that, and that such a death apart from love profits a person nothing. This love, agape love that, 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 that Paul is talking about here, that he's teaching about, it's an act of the will. That is, I choose to do it, not based on a feeling, not based on any reward from anybody, but based on because it's, it's the love of God. It's what God did for me on the cross. And God says, I'm to love others this way. I choose to do it. Agape love involves the heart. Verse 1. Agape love involves the mind. Verse 2. Agape love involves the will. Verse 3. Love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And though we're to earnestly desire the best gifts, Paul said, hey, desire the best gifts. And even though we're to earnestly desire the best gifts, they're to be exercised in love. And it's only the Holy Spirit that can do that. In closing, J. Vernon McGee said, look at it this way. He said, write down a string of zeros. Eloquence alone is zero. Prophecy alone is zero. Knowledge alone is zero. Faith alone is zero. Sacrifice alone is zero. Martyrdom alone is zero. Six zeros still add up to nothing. But you put the number one to the left of that string of zeros and every zero amounts to something. Church love is the thing that needs to be added to every gift of the Spirit. And then they will amount to something. Without love, your gift, my gift is worthless. Paul is saying that the person without love produces nothing, is nothing, and profits nothing. 1 John 3.23 says this. And this is his commandment. The Apostle John speaking here. And this is his, speaking of Jesus, this is Christ's commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Notice. As he gave us commandment, we are to love one another. Here's the bottom line. God does not command you to feel like loving. He commands you to think, to speak, and to act in a loving manner. And my duty is to obey and to submit to the word of God. Father, we thank you so much for this powerful chapter, Lord. We thank you for a love, God, that you gave to us. It's a love that we didn't deserve. It's a love that we can't earn. It's a love that I am not worthy of. But you love me anyway. And you allowed yourself to be nailed to a cross. To show that love to me. You didn't have to do it. But you gave your life for ours. You died that we might live. That we might have eternal life. And now we are to love others as you have loved us. 
And it's not a suggestion. It's a command. Let us obey. And let us live the life of Jesus in us that others might be saved. So, Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your wonderful mercies. Father, we thank you for the offering that we will receive today, Lord. As always, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your, your, your faithfulness, your generosity in taking care of us, Lord. And it's in Jesus' wonderful name that we pray. Amen.